Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Podcast, equipping people to live successful Christian lives. We're in this final talk today that I want to talk about that's something that as I was praying about this week in preparation, even last week for this last portion, is many people think God's holding out on them and doesn't care. Many people and some Christians feel this way about God. And uh, a lot of people think that when you're talking about questions of faith, you have to have a bunch of different kinds of answers, depending on whether you're talking to a believer, non-believer, new believers, or immature believers. So, but here's what I found out after talking about this. Believers and unbelievers have essentially the same questions and the same struggles. Did you know that? And the answers we need are really basically the same. And I share that because Psalm 73 is a psalm about the universal problem of doubt. Doubt. Doubt affects every single one of us, whether we're a believer or not a believer. So people say to me sometimes, Pastor, do you ever have doubts? And I always look at them in the eye and I say, I never doubt. Only sinners doubt. Just kidding. I don't say that. <laughs> Just seeing if you're listening today. I do have doubts. Believe me, I have doubts. There probably isn't a day that goes by that I don't doubt, okay? And I'm sure you do as well. And that doesn't mean I'm not a good Christian. It just means as we're looking into this, we see today, I hope to answer some of these questions because we're going to look at the whole Psalm of 73 today. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me because I'm going to go through this verse by verse. As we look at God's Word, we all have doubts. Why did God do something and not do this? It, it seems so obvious. It seems so easy. God, I really needed this, and I thought you were going to do it, and I obeyed what your word told me, but then, God, you didn't seem to come through. You, you didn't get the job that you thought you were going to get. Uh, she said no. The pregnancy test came back negative, or the cancer screen came back positive. Or you looked around at the world and thought, God, I don't mean to criticize you, but I just don't think you're doing a very good job at running this whole thing. Right? And, you know, if I were God, I'd be doing a lot much better job. We think that. God, your reward system seems really out of whack. And these bad people over here are getting away with murder, some of them literally. And these good people over here are getting smacked unfairly at every single turn. We've all asked questions like this. I've asked them in my life, and for many people, it's made us wonder, God, are you even there? And I doubt sometimes that. But even biblical writers we know had doubts. Most of them did. In fact, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, Jesus' cousin, a few years into Jesus's ministry was like, you know, I'm not sure you're actually the Messiah. Matthew tells us that uh, some of them even doubted after the resurrection, right? And he was ascending, he's floating up in the air, and they were so confused at what God said he was going to do or supposed to do. But here's what I want you to understand. Doubt is a part of a thinking life. Doubt is a part of a thinking life. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Doubt happens when the superficialities of your faith meet the realities of the world that you live in. That's real life. That happens. When, doubt happens when the superficialities of your faith meet the realities of the world that you and I live in every day. 
And if you've never doubted, chances are you only have a superficial faith that's really never asked many questions and you've never really gone deep in what God wants you to get into. You know, some people only have inherited faith. They only have it inherited and it's not theirs. What's happened is is they've had it spoon-fed to them. So God uses doubts to drive us deeper in him if we will allow it and break up the shallow ground and the childish nature of our faith. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said, which I think is a great point. Think of doubt, he says, like a foot poised to go forward or backwards. It can drive you backward into unbelief, but you can never go forward without picking up your foot. God allows doubt to press you and I deeper into him into him. And so that's what the psalmist is going to talk about in Psalm 73 today. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Now, who is Asaph? Well, David's worship pastor was Asaph. How many of you know that David had a worship pastor? Well, who it was was Asaph. Verse 1, surely God is good to Israel to those that are pure in heart. There is a statement of faith. That's what he believes. But here's how he feels. But as for me, I came so close to the edge of the cliff, my feet were slipping. I was almost gone. I was almost gone, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph, the writer, begins to contrast his rock-solid belief with the hard knocks of his own life experience. And the psalmist confesses that his doubt began with envy which is almost always the case. You know, really, and that is in our life. Envy, of course, is when you want somebody else's life. The opportunities, their talents, their looks, their possessions, how they're looked at and how they're viewed at by the world around them. And this psalm helps you label envy for exactly what it is, that it's doubt in the goodness of God towards you. Envy is the horizontal expression of a vertical problem. And this is what the the psalmist is saying. Envy is so pervasive in our human world, in our heart, that even in the Garden of Eden, it seemed unsatisfactory. And it has nothing to do with our circumstances, but has everything to do with the condition of our own hearts. Adam and Eve are literally in a perfect place. They get to run around naked all day and think, I'm pretty sure God is holding out on us. Right? They had it all. They ran around naked, right? Everything was provided for them, and they still thought God is holding out on us. How do we know that? Well, if you look at it, they have what we call, and we know, as FOMO. Oh, the really good stuff is in that tree. Not these other trees, but it's in that tree right there, and we're not supposed to be at that tree And we're not supposed to pick any fruit from that tree. And so how many of you know that envy is so pervasive even in our own children, right? Just hand cookies to each of your children, and one of them will look at the other one and see who got the bigger cookie, right? Isn't that true? Did they get something bigger? Is their sucker bigger than my sucker? What is going on here? And so we see that even in the life of a little child, they think, oh, wow, somebody got something better than me, and I doubt I got the best. And so here you see Adam and Eve, they thought God was holding out on them, and they doubted God's goodness. 
So let me ask you, who or what are you envious of today? Could you call that for what it is? It's a challenge to the goodness of God if we allow it. And what makes it worse for the psalmist is that these people, these people he's so envious of are not good people. And it shows us this. He calls them wicked, but they still get to be the social elites of his day. His his description of them are in verse 4. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. What is he saying? They're beautiful. They have front row seats to all the games. They fly first class everywhere. I'm, I'm adding to this. They are free from common human burdens, right? They have, wow, they have assistants. They wear designer clothes. Their kids go to school on scholarships, and they get great jobs. Verse 6, therefore, pride is their necklace, What's, what does that mean? Well, what's really upsetting is he's saying is that they take credit for all of it as if they, they have a reason to take it on, that it's all about them. They seem o- oblivious to the fact that their prosperity is mainly due to being born with rich parents. They clothe themselves with violence. Their pride makes them hateful, disdainful towards others. They really think they're better than everyone else. They oppress people and they get away with it. Verse 7, from their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limit. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Does God even realize what's going on, they ask. They assume that whatever is out there belongs to them and that they should get first dibs on heaven. They, they don't know any other posture at the top looking down. The truth is they don't really see a need for God at all. Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like. They're always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Now, sometimes we can look at this, and before we get too self-righteous, when you and I are blessed with good things, don't we think primarily it's about what we have done? How often do we just naturally, uh, really, in those moments, look up to God and thank God for the good things in our life, realizing that all we have is a gift from our Father? You say, well, not me. I mean, I've worked hard for everything I've gotten. Well, where did you get your talent and intelligence? Probably a lot of it came from your genes, right? Which you had no part in it. And do you really think if you'd been born in a poor village in India that you would have succeeded like you did? What you have and what I have been given has been enabled by God. You've been surrounded by multiple levels of grace in your life. And so did we really work for all of it or did we receive it from the Lord isn't that why sometimes we tend to pray when things are going really bad rather than things are really good, right? Really is true for all of us that we, den- we generally pray more when things are going really bad in our lives. We do that. So Tim Keller says that this, that every human society that has ever existed, whether it's a nation, a race of people, a church, basketball team, or a group of eighth grade girls has been characterized by pride at the top and envy at the bottom. So he says this in verse 13. Have I been wasting my time? Why take 
the trouble to be pure. All I get out of this trouble is woe every day, all day long. The psalmist says, all this stuff I've done for God, the way I've tried to obey him and trust him in what I've done, it's just really not been worth it. It's just not been worth it. And, and, and it could sound like this in our life. Well, I tithe and I give to God and I'm under constant financial strain. I've thought that before. Even my marriage is not a fairy tale. I always assumed it would be. And, and I did everything according to prescription. I, I read my kids' devotions while growing up and some of my kids are the very ones that rebelled. Maybe this stuff about God that I've been believing is not even true after all. These are thoughts that come into our mind. Verse 15, he said, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And there was something at this moment that about verbalizing the statement that he woke up. He says, when I tried to understand all this, verse 16, it troubled me deeply. Because basically... What he did is he heard himself admit that the reason he had served God was so that God would make his life easy. And the Spirit of God quietly whispered to him, really, why are you serving me? And I'd like to pose that question to you today. For those of you that are followers of Christ, why are you serving him today? Why are you serving him? Is it because what you can get from him or because you want more of him? Which one better maybe characterizes our approach to God today? Is he useful or is he beautiful? Is he just useful to you or is he truly the most beautiful person? Because how you answer that will determine how you respond to the pain in your heart right now. The psalmist says, this was my attitude toward God. And what was worse, I was communicating to others by my attitude. This is why I just basically served God, because he was just useful for me. I just served God because I thought he was going to make my life easy. When our attitude toward God is this way, when our joy in heaven is less, when things are not going well, what kind of message are we sending about the beauty of God himself? I heard about a TV evangelist who promised that if you would give a minimum of $1,500 to his ministry, God told him that he, he would multiply his money and make all your financial troubles go away. Max out your credit cards, he said. And, you know, I'm thinking for a moment, Lord, would it be sinful to fly down there and punch this guy in the throat? <laughs> Lovingly in Jesus' name. And here's what this TV evangelist wanted to say. He said, when your life suddenly fills with blessing, uh, your neighbors will see the smile on your face as you drive the new Maserati. They'll be amazed at the goodness of God in your life. Is that really what will amaze your neighbor? Maybe what would really amaze your neighbors is when they see you have a joy that isn't dependent on how nice your car or your healthy body really is. Amen? I've always loved the way John Wesley described this. He says this, you hear that an uncle you didn't know has died and left you millions upon millions of dollars. You're summoned to the bank to collect it. And about a half a mile from the bank, your car breaks down on the way. 
And you don't shake your fist at God. You, you, you know, you don't look envy, enviously at everybody else. You skip your way to the bank. That half a mile walk becomes the most joyous walk you ever took. The believer's walk, though fraught with pain and disappointment, becomes the most joyful walk you've ever taken because what awaits you on the other side in just seconds away is worth it. Life is hard, but through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that has brought me safe thus far. Psalmist goes on, then one day I went into God's sanctuary. Let me tell you something. I am thankful for every single one of you that made the choice to get out of your bed today and come to the sanctuary of God. You made a choice. You said yes to this, so you said no to other things. Then one day I went into God's sanctuary to meditate, and I thought about the future of these evil men. In the midst of his doubt, he came into the presence of God. And this is what he saw, verse 18. What a slippery path they are on. Suddenly God will send them sliding over the edge of the cliff down to their destruction. This is pretty, this is pretty frank language, isn't it, by the psalmist? An instant end to all their happiness and eternity of terror. Their present life is only a dream. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And here's the reality. I have two points here that I want to make before we draw this to conclusion. That if you believe God is holding out on you, I want you to just to line it up with these two things. And God wants to, us to be awakened to these two points. Number one, eternity restores the balance in our life. Scripture presents this life so quick, it's like a dream. When you have a dream, and it seems so real, but when you wake up, it's like it was so short and meaningless, doesn't it? How many of you here are vivid dreamers? You are just vivid. So, so quite a few of you are vivid. I mean, how many of you are so vivid when you got up the next day, even throughout the day, you really thought that dream happened? I do that. That is crazy, Right? right? Like you got up and you dreamed something about your spouse that they were dating somebody else and you're mad at them all day long. How many of you are with me, right? You're like, I was so mad at you all day because in my dream, you decided to go date somebody else. I'm not the only one that happens to you, right? Right? Chris and I have had good laughs about that. Yeah, it's not, no, it's fine. We're, we didn't do that, right? You're so vivid, you're like halfway through the day, you're like, wait a minute, that really did not happen. It did not happen, okay? You gotta tell yourself the truth. But you wake up for a few moments and you realize it wasn't true, and the thing that seems so real and scary for you uh, for a while is revealed just as a dream. And that's what the world is like. For those outside of God, Death is going to be a sudden awakening from their illusion of success and power. It's like they wake up out of a dream and it's all over. Here's what Tim Keller said. The rich without God are on their way to be eternally poor. Celebrities without God are on their way to be eternally ignored. That's powerful. I remember years back, Steve Harvey and Miss Universe. That was painful to watch, you know. When the first girl gets the crown and she has all the joy, and then we know, we're like, oh, boy, you're thinking, it's not real. 
it's just seconds away. It's all going to be taken away from you. Remember how, you remember how painful that was, those of you that saw that? So which would you rather be? Would you rather be the first Miss Universe or the second? Wait for the crown that can never be taken away. And Steve Harvey, metaphorically speaking, is already coming back on stage and the real coronation is only seconds away. On the flip side, for every believer, all the pain that you're going through is going to seem meaningless compared to the joy that you experienced one second in heaven. Here's a great verse of Romans 8.18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. C.S. Lewis says, when we get to heaven, C.S. Lewis has some of the greatest quotes about heaven that are so true. When we get to heaven, it's not that we look back and see the reason bad things happen and say, oh, that's why it happened. Rather, we will say, what bad things? In that moment, we will be so consumed with God's finished product, we will scarcely remember the process he used to get us there. You'll learn to see even the painful things as a blessing. Why? Because you'll allow them at that point to drive you deeper in him. Deeper in him. And so believers in this room, you may not see it now, but all this pain is just temporary and it will be over soon. God is more real than the ground you stand on. And in him you were richer than if you had all the jewels that lied beneath our feet in the ground that we stand on. They are already yours. You're just seconds away from saying, what pain? For the believer, the brief pain of this world is the closest to hell they will ever come. And for the unbeliever, the, the, the brief pleasure of this world is the closest thing heaven will ever come. It's just seconds, just moments away. And only when we learn to understand the brevity of our life. I'm 52 years of age. I'm thinking, wow, life is moving very fast. Psalm 90, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to do this, to learn wisdom. Or another way that Martin Luther translated this, teach us that we must die one day so that we will know how to live today. Only in the light of the brevity of life that you will learn, and I will learn how to live today and in this moment. You know, I've noticed this, that a lot of our doubts about the goodness of God are predicated really on, on the assumption that life is long and permanent. But when you realize how temporary life is, a lot of your doubts dissipate with the morning mist. You begin to live for real things. You begin to live for eternal things. See, that thing's just, those things just begin to transcend at some moment in your heart, in your life. You know, it's not foggy anymore. You start getting clarity, right? As you start moving through life, you start really living for what matters. You start living for eternity and the things that you know can never be taken away from you and me. So you got to understand that heaven is the great equalizer. Number two, Jesus is enough. Can you say that with me? Jesus is enough. You learn that. And this is what the psalmist is pointing to. This is bigger. This is the bigger truth of the passage right here. This is it right here. The psalmist realized that the whole focus of his faith has been wrong. He's been more interested in what God could give him than God himself. And he, he's like, this is what he says about himself. I was like a beast 
I was like an animal. That's what he's saying. And, and, you know, animals don't typically think about the future, do they? Right? They're not worried about 401ks. They're not, how many of you know that your animal typically are not interested in you for you? They are interested in what you can do for them, right? You know, I, we, have a, we have a dog that uh, knows 5 o'clock she wants to eat. And if we don't get it, that dog's paws are on me, and she comes and lays on me, the big golden doodle, about 70 pounds. It's like, what can you do for me right now? Can you give me something? Food, right? Asaph says, I treated God in ways I hated to be treated by someone else. You know, really, imagine you had a really powerful dad and someone acted like they wanted to be your friend or they're interested in you romantically, but it came out that it was solely because of what your dad could do for them. You'd say, well, I feel used. The psalmist says, this is how I've been treating God. And, and my envy showed that, and I'm like a beast because of it. And he says in verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. The riches I want and need are only in you. You know, I'm excited about heaven because it's about you, God. I've got you here on earth, but in heaven I'm going to have it. I'm going to know. And this is the secret to the Christian's joy. Jesus is always with us, and he is better than anything that life can give away or that death can give away. You know, you've heard the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, the quadriplegic, who lost complete control of her arms and legs in a diving action. She was a teenager. She said, I'm okay with losing the use of my hands and my feet for the last 60 years. I wouldn't change a thing because it brought me nearer to God. I mean, could we say that from the situation we're in today? Could we say that? that that's, that's a deep question. Could, could we say that from a wheelchair? That gladly you could lose your arms and the function of them and your legs if you got Jesus? Can you say that when your child is not well, your child is in a wheelchair, your child is in the hospital, but, but it, helps, it, it helps our life to know if we have this really decided in our heart. Is Jesus just beautiful or is he just useful? Because suffering drives you and I like a hammer drives a nail. Deeper into God's love. Deeper into him. The Psalms message in this, Jesus is better to us than anything that life can give us. Can I hear an amen? amen? And death can't take it away. Here's George Mueller. This is like George Mueller. If you've never read anything of George Mueller, you should read it. He's like the Chuck Norris of prayer. I'm serious. Was famous for receiving stunning answers to the prayers that he prayed. He ran an orphanage, and more than once, he sat the kids down with nothing to eat and prayed and had someone unknown to him while he was praying show up at the door with bread or milk. His wife contracted rheumatic fever, and he prayed earnestly for her healing, but God didn't heal her, and she died. And the last verse he read to her on her deathbed was Psalm 84, 11, and it is, no good thing will he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. God is good even when he doesn't do 
what we expect. His plan is always good. I'm not sure where you're at today in your pain, but God's plan is always good. God's plan is always good. Even if it's not turning out like you and I expected, he's working out a plan today. Do we trust him enough? Do I really trust him? Is his presence and promise enough for me? Do I really trust him to guide me with his right hand? You see this in this. He says, he guides me with his right hand. I love this because inside of this, God will guide you with his right hand is found 166 times in the Bible. Do you believe that he will sustain you? That's what he said in verse 20. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Yet even after I've acted terribly toward him, the psalmist said, yet somehow he didn't leave me. He held me. And even when I didn't trust him and didn't think that he was enough, he kept holding on to me with his right hand. He gave me strength. Same hand that I put a nail through because of my sin. It's how great his love is for us. Two things destroy envy, and by extension, doubt, faith, knowing how extravagant is the love of God and humility. Knowing how absolutely undeserving you and I were of his love. And then verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Then he comes to conclusion 27. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. He ends by saying basically, if not Jesus, then who? Who else are you going to turn to, right? Walking with God is trusting him. It can be difficult, but walking away from him is infinitely harder because you and I have nowhere else to turn. Verse 28, but as for me, that's a personal choice, but as for me, that's personal, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. You can follow Jesus with unanswered question today. There may be things you're like, I still have questions. You can still follow him. You can still follow him. You're probably not going to get all explained, neither am I. But you just believe ultimately he will answer that. And so here's what I want to say as we draw this to conclusion is real faith, faith is acting today in a way that you know one day you will be glad you did. Amen? So where's your faith today? Is he useful or is he beautiful? Father, thank you for the psalmist that wrote this psalm, Lord, the clarity of his heart, Lord, that came through. And Lord, by your spirit caused him to wake up to the fact that eternity is the great equalizer. And that, Lord Jesus, you are enough today, no matter what we are going through in this room. No matter what we are going through, no matter what is happening, the pain of our heart today, Jesus, you are more than enough because your word says it. And we trust you, and we will act in accordance with your word. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen. 
Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to get in touch or would like more resources on how to live a successful Christian life, you can always find us at myabundantlife.com. Have a blessed week.